Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's return to our study of the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1 is where we are, and of course we've just had a wonderful time last week looking at the Forerunner's birth announcement, and we have been already uh, stunned at God's activity in this new era as redemption unfolds in the way that God describes it. Gabriel's already brought the news to Zacharias and to Elizabeth that there would be a forerunner who would come, as the text says, to prepare a people for the Lord, to make them ready. That was the announcement from the angel Gabriel to Zacharias. And he called it good news. This was good news to this old patriarch that there would be a forerunner who would come and make a people ready for the Lord's arrival. But that news wasn't the best news yet. It wasn't the best news yet. In fact, in chapter 2, when the angels meet some shepherds on the hillside, they tell them in chapter 2, verse 10, Don't be afraid, for behold... I bring you good news of a great joy. Good news of a great joy. There is better news yet to come. And so we find ourselves in chapter 1 at the parallel birth account. Parallel in Luke's gospel, certainly not parallel in chronology. They're six months apart, these events. But Luke records them and records the events of them almost in parallel in so many ways. And what you see here is some news given to a peasant girl by an archangel. And uh, when you read it, it's no wonder that Gabriel says what he says near the end of the account. Nothing will be impossible with God. Because the reality is, to the finite heart, to the finite mind, to our limited ability to grasp such wonders... This is impossible news coming from an archangel to a peasant young girl. So I want to just walk through the text of this impossible news from this angel to this girl. And I want us to look at Gabriel particularly because he is the messenger. He is the one bringing the news. He is the one that makes the declarations. He is the one who says to this young girl, what the news is. And so I want to look at where he was sent. I want to look at what he says about it. I want to look at how he confirms it. And then I want to look at whether or not the delivery was made and whether or not he was satisfied with it. And so we're going to walk through this text. And if you're keeping an outline, we're going to look at Gabriel's precise duty. Gabriel's precise duty. Then we're going to look at Gabriel's unfathomable decree the unfathomable decree given to this peasant by Gabriel. Then thirdly, we're going to look at his confirming declaration. Gabriel's confirming declaration. What did he say to affirm to her that this was indeed the fact? And then lastly, Gabriel's satisfied departure. His satisfied departure. Let's look first at his duty. What was he sent to do? Verse 26 Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So Gabriel is sent from God. He had said back when he spoke to Zechariah six months earlier, or just a little beyond six months earlier, Elizabeth became pregnant after his days of service were done, so it wasn't quite exactly six months after the announcement, but right in that ballpark. And so just a little over six months earlier, chapter 1, verse 19, Gabriel mentions who he is to Zacharias, and he says, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. And so what we have here in 26 and following is a second high commission. 
given to the angel Gabriel in the last six months. And he had spoken his name personally and really as a rebuke to Zacharias. If you remember if you were with us last time, this was a rebuke to Zacharias for doubting the revelation of God. He doubted God's character when he doubted his revelation. Note the, the parallel there. If you doubt the words of God, you are doubting the the integrity, the veracity of God, the truthfulness of God. Therefore, you're casting aspersions on his character. And so with even the slightest bit of doubt as to the veracity of God's message, there was a rebuke given to Zacharias. And, and Gabriel stated his position in the hierarchy of the angelic hosts. I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. The terms mean one who stands in the sight of. So, whatever image we can get of the throne of God from the Scriptures, there are angels that stand in the face of God or in the presence of God, and they look into the face of God, as you see you know, the prophet Ezekiel try to describe in the first chapter of Ezekiel with that bizarre image of angelic hosts in front of the throne. We can't quite grasp the picture of it. Even when a prophet writes it down, in, in human terms, it is strange to us. It is foreign. But there are angels who hover in the presence of God and they look into the face of God and they know His purpose and they know His will and when they're dispatched, they have a commission. They have a message. They carry with them the purposes of God. They are His angelic herald. That's this term. Gabriel stands in the sight of or face to face with God and he delivers messages. Now, the four places where Gabriel is mentioned by name in the Scriptures, he is always delivering a divine revelation which is of highest priority. In the prophet Daniel, chapters 8 and 9, you have Gabriel mentioned by name, and he is doing that very thing. He is mentioned as having appeared to Daniel as a man, and Daniel writes down later on what he had heard from the voice of this emissary, this messenger from God. Daniel 8.16, Daniel says, I heard the voice of a man between the banks of lie. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he hears the voice, the, the divine voice, saying to Gabriel, give to this prophet the vision. Same thing in Daniel chapter 9, verses 21 and 23, to 23. The man Gabriel came to me in my extreme weariness. So there was, of course, uh, an unnerving as Daniel received the visions from God, because the visions themselves were calling forth judgment and nations, they were massive visions about rulership and kingdoms and the toppling of the kingdom that he was in at the time. And so he is sick to his stomach, he's weary, and he's being given this divine message from God himself. And so in his extreme weariness, he says, Gabriel came to him about the time of the evening offering, Daniel 9 says, and he gave me instruction and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding, and I've come to tell you. So there is this uh, mission that Gabriel takes from the throne of God to the prophet. His name isn't mentioned in the 10th chapter of Daniel, but he is referred to as the one speaking. And he mentions that a demon was hindering him from delivering his message until the archangel, the highest chief angel or prince of heaven, the chief prince Michael came and, uh, and thwarted whatever demonic hindrance was going on, keeping Gabriel from delivering his message. So Michael came and solved the problem. So there was some angelic warring going on, and you see that same thing in Revelation 12, where Michael the archangel and the host of angels are warring in heaven with Satan and his minions. He is, according to Jude 1.9, highest archangel. Michael is. And so while Gabriel wasn't mentioned in Daniel 10, he was hindered, and he's the one still speaking the vision. He's the one that goes to give the message. And so in Luke 1.19, he says to Zacharias, I've been sent to you to bring you this good news. And so when we get to Gabriel's second commission here, he is sent from God in that sense. So he's duty bound. 
And he's duty-bound to God's sovereign timing. Notice, now, in the sixth month, God is meticulously orchestrating the perfect timing of these unfolding events, as he always does. And Gabriel had already told Zacharias that everything will be fulfilled in their proper time. In fact, that was part of the rebuke. Zacharias didn't believe the revelation, and it's interesting that Gabriel says to him, listen, because you didn't believe, you're going to be mute, and these things are going to be fulfilled in their proper time. It's already been set, Zacharias. You don't have to worry that there's a span of time between when you're told the news and when it happens. If God said it, if it's purposed in his heart and comes out of his mouth, it is indeed settled. It will happen. It'll be fulfilled in its proper time. And so it is to this commission that Gabriel is duty-bound to come in the sixth month as God had planned. The sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. That is the, the, the concept here, the, <clears throat> the meaning that's being conveyed. In Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's sixth month, Gabriel, by the way, will mention that <clears throat> later, duty-bound to God's sovereign timing. <clears throat> and he comes to the chosen instrument of God. Verse 26. <clears throat> he comes to a city, <clears throat> excuse me, called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. There was a specific place to which Gabriel was going. He was going to a town in Galilee. City is probably not the best word because we think of a large place. This is just a town, and it's in the region around Galilee. And um, it's right between Tyre and Sidon, ancient Tyre and Sidon. And it was those were port cities. So <clears throat> basically, if you traveled from one of those places to the next, you would travel through Nazareth as sort of a means from one to the other. Mary and Joseph are originally from Nazareth. And uh, when Jesus was about three months old, the family fled to Egypt to escape Herod's threat of, of killing the child. And then an angel told them they could come back once Herod was dead. And they came back, and Matthew 2.23 says that they settled in Nazareth, and that is where Jesus grew up. And that was, of course, fulfillment of the prophecy that he would be a Nazarene. Nazareth was a fertile area and, and attractive as a town, we're told, but, but it was a difficult place to live because it was run over by Gentiles who had sort of used it between those port cities as a place of, of uh, corrupt trade. Roman soldiers were put there for a military presence to sort of keep the corruption and the crowds under control. And so this is a place between the port cities where if you lived there, you had to watch yourself. It was not necessarily known as of any account. In John 1.46, when Philip came to tell Nathaniel that they'd found the Messiah, they said, Jesus is from Nazareth. He's the one. And Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of that place? That was the reputation. Can any, anything good come out of Nazareth? It's corrupt. It's, it's of no account. It's a place you stay for the night, maybe. It's a place you watch your back. It's a place where Gentiles are all over the place in corrupt business, and a Roman military presence is heavy. Nobody wants to be from there. Nobody wants to be known for being from Nazareth. It's interesting, isn't it, that God goes outside of the favored land of Judea? He presses when he sends Gabriel uh, past the favored fertile plains of Judea and past even the place of the center of worship in Jerusalem. And he sends his angel Gabriel not to some palace, not to some high place, not to some royal princess who was sitting in some window in all of her regal splendor, but he sends Gabriel to Galilee, outside of Judea, and he sends him to a small, no account, rather despised town, a bit of a seedy village, to a young teenage girl named Mary, who was a virgin. <clears throat> She's betrothed. Betrothing was one year, one year long, and during the betrothal period, 
your belongings as a young girl were given or vested to the husband. So they were given to the husband already. They were part of his property. You were betrothed in the sense that you were committed to him. And so for one year, you either lived with your family or your friends prior to marriage. Your husband got his estate set or his job or whatever provisions made. And it was during that one year period where all your property was his. You were exclusively bound to him, waiting to be wed. And if you had committed adultery during that time, according to the Deuteronomic law, you were stoned. So it was a test of your commitment, your faithfulness, your purity. Deuteronomy 22:23 says, if you were found to be an adulteress at that time, they killed you. And Luke mentions that her fiancé, Joseph, was of the descendants of David. Of the descendants of David. Chapter 2, verse 4, indicates that he was going up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. So he was in the line of David, and even though he was not the physiological father of Jesus, he was the legal father and of David's descendants. We also might assume from this text, according to verse 32 and verse 69 of this chapter, that Mary was also of the descendants of David. Notice verse 32. This son will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And then in verse 69, when Zacharias prophesies, he says that the Lord has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. So this indicates that... uh, Mary was also in the line of David, and so it indicates that Jesus was rightfully in the royal bloodline. Later on, as Jesus' messianic identity began to become well-known, no one ever disputed that whenever it was said that he was a son of David. It was said of him in the genealogy in Matthew 1.1, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Matthew will record in Matthew 9, verse 27, two blind men followed Jesus, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. That happens again in Matthew 15, 22. It happens in Mark 10, 47 and 48. Same thing. Have mercy on us, son of David. In Luke 18, Luke will record in verses 38 and 39 that they said to him, Have mercy on us, son of David. So the Messiah was the son of David, and no one disputed the house he came from, even though they knew he was from Nazareth and knew that his father was Joseph the carpenter and his mother was Mary. And so he is in the rightful line. Joseph was his legal father, which gave him legal connection to the line of David, and Mary was his biological mother, giving him the royal bloodline connection to the line of David. And so the stage is set. There was a specific commission to a specific place in a specific time period. And so here's Mary, this young, very unassuming teenage girl. We don't really know what age, but it's interesting to read the history and the, and the theories about it. Most likely, she's probably early to mid-teens be hard-pressed to think of her as any older than that. She's early to mid-teens. Ladies, what were you doing in your early to mid-teens? Back then, of course, uh, women were were not held in high honor as to their voice and opinions and perspectives. In those societies, they were relatively uh, denigrated by the Jewish community, if not totally denigrated by the Gentile community, and um, thought lower of and treated as such. And so if you grew up in a Jewish home, you would have been taught the law of God. You would have learned the law of God as the Magnificat song she sings clearly indicates. Uh, but most of the time you spent your days in those, those uh, post-bar mitzvah years, those early to mid-teens, you spent your days uh, awaiting provision from your family or betrothal to a young man who was building his life And uh, you spent your days taking your duties and your tasks seriously. And Mary, of course, is that kind of a girl just going about her 
daily life. She is, of course, morally pure. She's unsullied by the culture. And uh, probably not very educated in terms of any sophisticated formal education. She knew the law of God to, to a large degree, having heard it uh, in her growing up years. And she is betrothed to this strapping young carpenter who is trying to make his life and get his business going and set up house and home for his bride-to-be. And so on this very ordinary day, going about her very ordinary tasks, she gets a visitor. And so Gabriel had a precise duty, and he comes and he makes an unfathomable decree. An unfathomable decree. Verse 28. And coming in, <laughs> I just have to say, they don't need to knock, apparently. Uh, Gabriel knows where she lives. He's following God's commission. Uh, I don't know if it's like you see when we try to produce it in a cinematography in some film where the sky swoops down and the camera gets close. You know how it is in Google Maps. You can kind of get closer and closer till you see the house. I don't know how that works. I don't know if he just moves at the speed of thought or what. But he doesn't have to knock, apparently. And coming in, and notice, he said to her, Hello. <laughs> Greetings. Favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, he's been commissioned to deliver the most important message ever in the history of sinful men. This is it. It had been foretold and passed from generation to generation, but this is it. This is real time. This is happening. When you get to heaven, you will meet Mary. When you get to heaven, you can speak with Gabriel. You can even ask about this moment. Mary, what was that like? Because it did happen in real time, according to God's sovereign plan, in the fulfillment of its proper time, as Gabriel had said. And so uh, six months after he'd suddenly turned up inside the holy place next to the altar of incense, here he simply comes right in and gives this greeting. Hello, favored one. The Lord is with you. Verse 29 indicates that Mary had the same reaction as Zacharias. By the way, very perplexed. Unfortunate translation. This is a derivative of the same word that was used of Zacharias when it said he was greatly troubled. Greatly troubled. That's what some of your translations might say. Very perplexed is what the NAS says. All it means is that she was equally disturbed and troubled, startled, shocked. She doesn't even have years of human life experience like Zacharias. She's just an unassuming teenage girl. She doesn't even have years of walking with God and experiencing His love and His favor and His grace uh, in the adult years. She hasn't even raised a family. She hasn't even passed the fear of God onto children. She is a young 14, 13, 14, 15-year-old. And she's definitely stunned and she is terrified. That's why Gabriel has to say to her as well in verse 30, don't be afraid. Some have suggested she's not afraid here. Well, of course she is. She's terrified just like Zacharias. But then verse 29 says something quickly happened in her as she was gaining her composure. It says she kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The verb means she kept giving serious consideration to the implications. In other words, she's already beginning to ask questions about the meaning of this visit. So her mind is working fast for answers as to what this opening statement might mean. She caught it. Hello, favored one, the Lord is with you. That suddenly set her on a course of pondering the implications. Am I being given a, a responsibility from God that's different than the one I've already been doing? As I said, Jewish women, especially girls, were not given formal greetings by anyone but their moms and sisters. They certainly weren't spoken to in society by men. They were treated as second class to a large degree. Was she suddenly being called into some kind of special service? 
why would this man be greeting her and this divine man be in her presence? Was this some sort of new confirmation she'd never heard about? So she's, you can get the scene. She's trying to calm her nerves. Her mind's beginning to ponder the implications of this greeting for her life. It's a bit of insight into her humility, isn't it? Look at verse 38. Notice what she says. Behold, the slave of the Lord, the slave of God. That's interesting. You can tell she is a young girl who makes very little of herself. She does not see herself as needing to be someone other than God has made her. And so she entrusts herself to the word of God with immediate faith and submission. Verse 39 indicates that her faith was proven in her actions when she immediately went to visit Elizabeth. She got up and went in a hurry to the hill country. Why? She didn't get any message from Elizabeth. She hadn't heard from family members. Elizabeth was already down the road and was in seclusion for five months. And now in her sixth month, Mary's being told she gets up and goes. This is again... A woman who just doesn't need a whole lot of encouragement to believe revelation from God. Look at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior. He has regard for the humble state of his slave. Of course, all generations will counter blessed, not because she's somebody, but because the Lord has had regard for the humble state of his slave. She doesn't see her blessedness as anything other than related to God looking with mercy upon a slave. Don't you love that? No wonder she was the kind of young girl that when she heard the angel say hello, she immediately began to ponder the implications of the greeting because she didn't see herself as worthy of such a thing and always wanted whatever the Lord wanted. And it was a message that was born out of undeserved favor. Notice, greetings favored one. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. In verse 30, you have found favor with God. If you had a background in the Catholic Church... Uh, like my wife's family, my wife and her whole family, then you would have heard often the Hail Marys and probably said them often in your days in the Catholic tradition. Uh, and that's because uh, the Catholic Latin versions of this verse, uh, Hail Mary, full of grace, was how it was translated. It was an unfortunate translation because in the 1800s, the Pope sort of took what the people began to believe for all that time. They, they believed for centuries that Mary was sinless and they worshipped her as sinless. And so the Pope in the 1800s uh, did what popes often do. They take what the people already believe and if there's no contradiction in the magisterium, there's no contradiction in the card, College of the Cardinals, there's no contradiction in the old uh, beliefs of the traditions, then they just declare it to be so. And so he did. In the 1800s he declared Mary as sinless. You know it as the Immaculate Conception, that she was born sinless, conceived without sin. And the reason is because of the Latin translation, she was full of grace. But that's an overly strong translation, and that's what fostered that idea. Mary would have been mortified at such a scandalous thought that she would have been born sinless, she is, of course, blessed among women. She says so. And the reason she's blessed is because God looked with favor upon her to be the instrument chosen for this task. Later, it will become no great enjoyment for her because she is told by Simeon later on when on the eighth day Jesus is being circumcised, she'll be told by Simeon in the temple, an arrow is going to pierce your own soul. And this son of yours is going to be for the rising and falling of many. And we'll talk about that on Christmas Eve, that very concept. So she was indeed blessed, but only because God had poured his favor out upon her. The words are more accurately translated, one who is highly favored or one who is highly and richly blessed by God. And that fits the context. Notice the next statement. The Lord is with you. No wonder you, he says in verse 30, you have found favor with God. God has dispensed his sovereign grace upon you because he is with you. 
That's why you've found favor and grace from God, because He's chosen to bring Himself near to you. That is an unfathomable decree, born out of undeserved favor. And it's a message about a a monarch who is unassailable. Listen to what this young teenage girl hears. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. I mean, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. That alone was a shock. A shock. The conception of a child by a virgin... This is not biologically possible without the supernatural. She knows it. Everyone knows it. And he announces that this son is going to have a name without equal or limit. He'll have a name that is without equal and without limit. Notice, he will be called or you shall name him Jesus and he will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. First of all, you're going to name him Jesus. Yahweh saves. Jehovah saves. Matthew writes in his gospel to a predominantly Jewish audience. And so he gives the explanation or the theological significance in Matthew 1.21. She will bear you a son, the angel tells Joseph. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Writing to a Jewish audience, that was an important clarification as to his name and the theological significance of it. But here, Luke just includes that the angel said, you shall call him Jesus to Mary. And notice, he will be great. You remember back in verse 15 when Gabriel announced to Zacharias about John the Baptist's uh, conception and his birth. He says, and he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. Here, Gabriel says, Jesus will be great. John the Baptist is sent as a great messenger with a service given to the Lord. But Jesus himself, personally, is great. Why is it different? Because of the designation that describes his greatness. Notice, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. He's not just going to do a great service like the forerunner who is going to announce Jesus' birth. You remember what John the Baptist will later say? I'm not even worthy to untie a sandal. He must increase. I must decrease. I'm not worthy. But this boy will be called the Son of the Most High. That is why he himself is great. The Most High is the most commonly used title in both the Old and New Testaments. For the Son of the Most High is the title for the Son of God. He is equal with God as His Son. And in fact, it goes beyond just a description that He is the Son of God, but it's very messianic. In other words, He's the Messiah who will come at the proper time. In Luke 9.35, Jesus was acclaimed by the heavenly voice at the transfiguration. And the voice from heaven said, My Son, My Chosen One. Jesus, of course, is God. That's why He's the Son of the Most High. He is the Son of God. The Pharisees wanted to stone Him for saying that He was equal with God. Why? Because He said He's the Son of God. Are you the Son of God? It is true. And they wanted to stone Him because He made Himself equal with God. They knew that the Son of the Most High was a messianic designation for the Messiah who is the Anointed One, the Son, the Chosen One of God, who is Himself equal with God. And when the Jewish council asked Him point blank that question in Luke twenty-two seventy, He accepted the claim as true. So Luke is highlighting his deity here and he is highlighting that he is the deliverer who would come as the promised one to Israel. He has a name without equal or limit. And he has a kingdom without rival or ruin. Notice, 
a kingdom without rival or rule, middle of verse 32, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Throne here is the, is the terminology for dominion and power, supreme power, sovereign power given by the Father to His Son who will sit on the throne of supreme power. And the Messianic King comes from the lineage of David of whom it says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14 that He will have a throne that is forever. It will go on and on. It will never end. His sovereignty will not pass like David's sovereignty. It is a spiritual kingdom, an everlasting one. It reigns over the whole earth, for he has the title deed and the right to it. And so, Mary, this little teenage girl, is hearing that he will have a kingdom without end, without any limits, without rival, without any ruin he has a name that is with, without equal. Astonishing news. I like how Dr. Kent Hughes summarized what Mary heard with these words. She understood the gist of the angel's announcement. You're going to become pregnant. You're going to call your son's name Salvation. He's going to be the Son of God and he will be the Messiah. To which Kent Hughes responds, What an earful. What an incredible heart full. End quote. That's right. That's stunning. It is magnificent. It is astonishing. It is a whirlwind. And it, it is just something hard to take in. In fact, that's just the tip of it because what comes next is too profound and humbling to take in. Mary, verse 34, said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? Now, I know what you're thinking right now. Man, Zacharias got the shaft. I mean, here's Mary questioning the news. How come Mary's allowed to question Gabriel's message, but Zacharias got the divine chewing out? What is the deal here? Actually, the answer is pretty simple, really. Zacharias' question came from an unwillingness to believe God's revelation. That's what Gabriel said. I muted you because you did not believe. So we know that in his heart, there was unbelief. You don't have that statement made here, so it's clear Mary was not unbelieving in her question. There is a difference. Can we know from the, the things that were said... That they were different? Well, yes. Go back to Zechariah's statement in verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, here it is, How will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. Yes, he is looking at the circumstances, but he's saying, I want assurance. I want some assurance that God could pull it off and would pull it off. That's bad news. Mary is different. She believes the revelation, but is asking how God was going to overcome the fact that she was only yet betrothed and wouldn't have had physical intimacy with Joseph until they were wed. Verse 31 says, you will conceive in your womb. The angel told her, you're going to conceive in your womb. He doesn't mention Joseph, doesn't mention getting married, doesn't mention like he did with, with uh, Zacharias. Hey, Elizabeth's going to have a son. And remember when... Gabriel said it to Elizabeth, he, or to Zacharias, he said, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. That's interesting. That's specific terminology. Here, Mary is told, you're going to conceive in your womb. So all Mary's asking is, I, I just want to know how God's going to overcome that since I haven't known a man. I can understand a teenage virgin saying that. She's not yet wed. She's certainly not going to violate her purity. So in the case of Zacharias, he wanted some assurance that God could pull it off and would pull it off. Mary needed no such assurance. My guess is she just wanted to know what she was supposed to do 
Just tell me what I'm supposed to do about that barrier. I've got a barrier here. I'm not going to violate my purity. If I'm to bear this extraordinary son, what am I to do about having never known a man? Just, just give, me the, give me the marching orders. And then this message was attested by an unimaginable conception. Notice verse 35. It's just one of the most amazing verses in all the Scripture. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit. I love that that's up front. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. (laughs) And for that reason. That's it. That's all the explanation you get. And uh, no scholar in history has ever concluded that there's some sort of... uh, There's some sort of sensual reference here to something sexual. It is deliberately vague language because the divine supernatural mechanisms for these kinds of things are creative. They are fiat. He brings them into existence by decree and they happen. If God thinks it, it happens. All the way back to Genesis The Bible clearly says, and God said, and there was, and God said, and there was, and massive amounts of energy in the universe came bursting into existence without so much as moving out of their place. God can do that. But to describe it to us in how the Spirit hovers over such things like He did in the creation... How the Spirit exactly takes that fiat creative power and brings something new. You know how God describes it? I said, and it was. That's how he describes it to us. We couldn't know how divine power does all that. He formed man out of the dust, breathed into him the breath of life. Did you know that's all it says? It doesn't say, and then the veins did this, and the sand turned to this. And we, It doesn't do all that describably. It just does it instantly. And so I love the terminology here. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, will hover over you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The power of the Most High will, as an agent of creation, will bring this about. He'll bring this about. What will be the result? For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. He's going to be human and divine. And we have spent and spilled oceans of ink trying to describe what we in theology call the hypostatic union between the divine nature of God in Christ and the human nature of Christ. He is 100% human, 100% God. And of course, in the coming weeks as we head into Christmas, I'll talk more about the virgin conception. But this is profoundly set forth to this young teenage girl. Here's an answer to your question. How can it be? You're not going to know a man. God's going to do it. There's no begetting language here as if Jesus was a created being. There's none of that. He's divine. And he was conceived like a normal human with a human nature. And Angel Gabriel doesn't tell us anything more than that. And so as a result, he reveals himself as divine and human. And he will be acknowledged as such because he is called then the Son of God. Equal with God and yet a son taking on human form. Even Philippians 2 doesn't describe it in any more detail than that. And even though he didn't regard equality with God or a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. We don't even, we can spill a lot of ink theologically on that term. He set aside the divine prerogative of his equality with God and didn't independently use it, but took the form of a man, became one of us in the form of a slave to this earthly life. And he even became obedient to the point of death. He died as a man. The Bible has a description of it, and that's as far as that description goes. 
How did Gabriel confirm the declaration? I love this. Verse 36. Gabriel's confirming declaration. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. And so he, he basically sends, says two things here as the confirming declaration of what he's just told Mary. First of all, a woman beyond childbearing has conceived. He says she is beyond childbearing, basically. She's conceived a son in her old age, and a womb once barren has opened. A woman who was called barren is now in her sixth month. There's the idea. It's confirmed in that a woman beyond childbearing has conceived, and it is confirmed when a womb once barren has opened. This is confirmed by the power of God in that it happened. A human barrier overruled by God's power. How do we know that? Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. And I don't know why um, sometimes we come to a text like this and um, on the one hand we lack sufficient astonishment for the wonder of it and on the other hand we act surprised like this is a big deal for God. It's not a big deal for God. Nothing is impossible with God. That's what Zacharias didn't readily believe. Zacharias did what human beings tend to do because we are pathetically self-oriented. Okay, Lord, you've told me this in your word. These are the circumstances of my life I've done a thorough investigation and evaluation, and it doesn't fit. So until I get some assurance, you know, we're like Thomas, until I see, I will not believe. Blessed are those who do not see and believe. Mary was different. Mary heard it and said, okay, if I'm to do this wonderful, privileged, blessed duty. Help me understand how I'm to get past this barrier, but I'm there. I'm willing. And so you go from Gabriel's decree to his declaration that this is confirmed by God's work in Elizabeth's life. A woman beyond childbearing is conceived. That's miraculous. A womb once closed and beyond opening is now opened. Nothing's impossible with God. And so you see Gabriel's satisfied departure. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. Behold is, is her saying, uh, you know, like we would say, um, listen up. This is her way of expressing to God, okay, hear me. The slave of the Lord, doulos, it's the word slave, may it be done to me according to your word. Look, this is even better than Joseph. Matthew 1.19 indicates that Joseph didn't even at first believe. Mary had told him, hey, I'm pregnant. And he said, well, something happened, so I'm going to put you away privately. The angel had to come and say, Joseph, don't be afraid to take her as your wife for that which is in Inside of her is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Even he was slow, but not Mary. Okay, I see how you're going to get past the barrier. She doesn't ask for any more clarification. She says, I'm your slave. Be it done to me according to your word. Note that. According to what you say. I believe it. I don't deserve it. But I believe it. And I'm ready to obey. I mean, that's a message astounding and beyond comprehension for a human. And she gave herself to it completely and submitted herself to it as the slave of the Lord. That is precious. No wonder it says the Lord was with her. He's just showering this sweet young girl with grace. She acts like a, like a matriarch with years of faithful experience. She's a young girl. It will change her life because she'll follow him all the way to his redeeming 
atonement. She'll follow him to the grave. She'll follow his, his, uh, the adopted caretaker, John. She'll be taken care of. She's there at Pentecost. And uh, she'd walked through all of that as a matriarch of model faith. Sure, she doubted. Sure, she struggled. As her heart wrenched when her son was on the cross, no doubt, she wearied. But yet, there's no indication that she ever abandoned what we see here. Slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. She didn't know what that would mean ultimately, but she's ready. She didn't have to. And so the angel, verse 38, departed from her. I have to believe that he was rejoicing as he went back to his heavenly father. Rejoicing, satisfied. I delivered the greatest news of the greatest joy which shall be to all people. And that young servant is favored, O oh God. She believed it. She submitted herself to it. She didn't need anything more than that. Isn't that rich? This really happened in real time in Nazareth, a little village, to Mary on that day. She was visited by an archangel, a high angel, Gabriel, the messenger who stands in the presence of God. And she was just a peasant girl. Look, you don't have to be, you don't have to imagine yourself as somebody before you can Experience the grace of God. All you got to do is believe. Real faith. Give yourself over as a slave to the Lord like Mary did. Isn't that great news that he announced? What a tender scene. What a powerful, powerful message. And we are going to see his birth unfold in the weeks ahead. So we rejoice. Bow with me. Lord, thank you for the sweetness of this scene the amazing and astonishing message that you brought through Gabriel. We do long to to come to grips with it every year as we celebrate it, to, to know that kind of faith every day of our lives, to see ourselves as your slave. And so we worship you as our great God. Please forgive us for times when we don't believe. And as we sing to your honor and to your glory in this closing, I pray that we'd lift our voices to you and and ask you to help us renew that kind of faith in us that we see in this precious young peasant girl. (laughs) Because you are our God, our Redeemer.